You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back to the broadcast, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you tonight, as every night, from the sunny climes of Western Japan. So once again, thank you for tuning in for this Friday night edition of the broadcast. I do appreciate you investing your mind time in this healthy alternative media. And here we are in the week of the 11th anniversary of 9-11, which, as you will have noted if you've been following along at CorbettReport.com and or subscribed to the RSS feeds there, I have been covering 9-11 and the 11th anniversary And, uh, well, I've been making some waves in doing so, so I am happy once again that this message is not extinguished and it is not dying out, and the very real unanswered questions of 9-11 are still front and center for many Americans and many people around the globe, like myself, who actually do care about truth and justice for the the, uh, incident of 9-11 and what took place there. But on that note, and on a related note of sorts, as people who listened, for example, to my podcast episode this last Monday about the 11th anniversary of 9-11, will know I was recently on Ground Zero Radio with Clyde Lewis talking about the May 1st, 2011 killing of Osama bin Laden, or the alleged killing in the raid, the alleged raid, on the Abbottabad compound by the Navy SEALs and SEAL Team 6. And we were talking about that at some length, and that conversation is archived up at CorbettReport.com, so if you missed that, I would suggest you go there and listen to it. I think it was a pretty interesting conversation, and we got a lot out on the table there talking about this Osama bin Laden myth that is being resurrected from the grave, the watery tomb, uh, to basically puppets and and, uh, and bring out the dead corpse of Osama on the stage of the DNC to talk about what a great commander-in-chief Obama is. Obama got Osama is the rallying cry for the Democrats this time around in this meaningless three-ring circus that's also known as the presidential election cycle. So we have seen the revivication of this Osama myth, basically, in order to justify four more years of Obama, because he's such a great hardline on the terrorists, and he's the one who got Osama, and he's getting Al-Qaeda under control, except in Syria and Libya, where Al-Qaeda is killing U.S. ambassadors and is uh, helping to overthrow Assad and commit terror acts on the people of Damascus. But that's okay, because they're on our side. But still, we're against uh, Al-Qaeda insofar as, uh, well, they, they were the ones who got us on 9-11, etc., etc. I don't need to really explain to the listeners out there what the official story is or the official story of Osama's death. But tonight we're going to be revisiting the Osama myth and memes and all of the legends that have been created around Osama and some of the real facts behind Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. And we're going to be doing that by breaking down, well, some of the uh, the work that I've done in the past on this topic at CorbettReport.com. So tonight we're going to be dipping into the archives for some videos that I've done in the past, including a an episode of the Last Word series, which uh, people will know I did about six episodes last year. I'm uh, restarting that series this year. I'm going to do another at least half a dozen episodes or so, and I just put out one the other day that's already been quite well received online, so if you haven't checked it out, just search for The Last Word on Voting in YouTube. But tonight we're going to listen to The Last Word on Osama Bin Laden, which I did last year in the wake of Osama Bin Laden's alleged killing. 
Uh, we're also going to listen to the Osama Deception, an episode of the Sunday Update news program that I did, uh, that I was doing last year, and where we covered the, well, the very many different things surrounding the Osama bin Laden death fairy tale that we're expected to believe and expected to swallow without question. Well, I broke down some of the, the lies and myths and uh, exaggerations behind that story. So we'll listen to a little bit of that, and we will also listen to the first part of my projected seven-part documentary series, Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist, of which parts two through seven don't exist, and perhaps never will at this point. It looks like in true Corbett style, I bit off more than I could chew, and I never did end up proceeding with that documentary, but we will listen to the first part that at least talks about the formation of Al-Qaeda and its true history. So a lot of information to get into in tonight's episode. And then at the end of the episode, I will be back to wrap things up. So let's take a short break. We'll be right back. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with the last word on Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden was one of the 54 children of Mohammed bin Awad bin Laden, a construction magnate who made his fortune by cozying up to the royal family of Saudi Arabia. The bin Laden family has had an intimate relationship with the upper reaches of global power politics for the past half century. In 1976, Salem bin Laden, Osama's half-brother, co-founded Arbusto Energy with George W. Bush. In 1996, after the bombing of the Kobar Towers for which Osama took credit, the Saudi bin Laden group was given the contract to rebuild the facility. Also in 1996, FBI agents in the Washington field office were investigating the World Assembly of Muslim Youth, a suspected terrorist organization that included Abdullah bin Laden, the group's president and treasurer, and Omar bin Laden. BBC News uncovered internal FBI documents showing how the agents were ordered to stop their investigation. The case was only reopened the week after 9-11, and the day after both brothers fled the U.S. with FBI permission. In 1998, another FBI investigation into the Bin Laden brothers, this one initiated by the New York field office, was called off by the State Department because, it was revealed, the Bin Laden family had been granted Saudi diplomatic passports in 1996 and thus had diplomatic immunity inside the United States. On the morning of 9-11, Osama Bin Laden's half-brother, Shafiq Bin Laden, was the guest of honor at a meeting of the Carlyle Group in Washington, which George H.W. Bush was also addressing. In the days after 9-11, two dozen members of the Bin Laden family and over 100 members of the Saudi royal family were flown to assembly points in Texas and Washington, and then flown out of the country. At least one of those flights took place during the total ban on civilian air traffic over North American airspace. Declassified FBI documents show that the Bureau believed the Bin Laden family flight out of the country, carrying suspected terrorists Abdullah and Omar Bin Laden, was chartered by Osama Bin Laden himself, but some of the passengers, including Abdullah, were not even interviewed in person by the FBI before their departure. Of course, for the purveyors of the official conspiracy theory of Al-Qaeda, none of this has any relevance because the Saudi bin Laden group, the family business conglomerate, issued a terse two-sentence statement in April of 1994 publicly disowning Osama. The facts, however, indicate that the public disowning was in fact a ruse. In 2004, Osama's half-brother Yeslam bin Laden admitted that the family shared a joint Swiss bank account with him. The account was not closed until 1997, 
the year after the Kobar Tower's bombing. Yeslam's ex-wife, Carmen, has also stated that she cannot believe that the family have cut off Osama completely, as have Vincent Canestrano, the former head of the CIA Counterterrorism Center, Michael Scheuer, the former head of the CIA Bin Laden unit, and the French Intelligence Service, which released a report two days after 9-11, indicating they believed the Bin Laden family to be covertly aiding Osama. Nonetheless, the question remains, do the Bin Laden family connections to the highest circles of power in the American political establishment have any relevance to the story of Osama Bin Laden? Is there any evidence that American intelligence was involved with Osama himself over the years? During Operation Cyclone, the U.S. government funded the Afghan Mujahideen in their struggle against the Soviets in the largest covert operation in CIA history to that date. An estimated $5 billion in arms and funding were supplied to the jihadis, including Stinger anti-aircraft missiles and other equipment that kept the Soviet Red Army bogged down in the country for years. Officially, the CIA's contact was limited to the Afghans themselves, and no funding was given to the so-called Arab Afghans like Osama bin Laden, the Muslims from the Arab world who came to Afghanistan to aid in the fight against the Soviets. In reality, however, CIA funds were being funneled to the ISI, the Pakistani intelligence service that distributed those funds to the Arab Afghans through an organization called MAK, or the Bureau of Services. Osama bin Laden was the one in charge of MAK's finances. This much was admitted by Osama's brother Salem in 1985, who confessed that Osama was the liaison between the U.S., the Saudi government, and the Afghan rebels at the time. In 1986, Salem asked the Pentagon for anti-aircraft missiles on Osama's behalf. The former chief of the U.S. Visa Bureau in Jeddah, Michael Springman, has testified that during his time there, he was repeatedly ordered by CIA officials to approve visas for bin Laden's Mujahideen cohorts so that they could be provided training at U.S. military bases. Eleven of the 19 alleged 9-11 hijackers would go on to get their visas from the same consulate. FBI whistleblower Sibel Edmonds has admitted that in her time at the FBI, she saw proof that the U.S. had maintained a very intimate relationship with bin Laden all the way through the 1990s, up to September 11th. The Guardian reported that Osama had traveled to the American hospital in Dubai for kidney dialysis treatment in July 2001. While there, he was visited by the local CIA station chief. When the CIA official later boasted about having met Osama bin Laden, he was promptly recalled to Washington. In a July 2005 article in The Guardian, Robin Cook, the former Speaker of the British House of Commons, asserted that the name Al-Qaeda itself actually referred to a database containing CIA assets from the Afghan Mujahideen struggle. Even Osama's alleged responsibility for the 9-11 events has been repeatedly called into question. In the weeks after 9-11, the Taliban offered to hand bin Laden over if the U.S. provided proof that he was connected to the attack. Bush turned the offer down. After the invasion of Afghanistan began in October, the Taliban again tried to hand him over, this time dropping the request for proof of bin Laden's guilt. Bush again refused. After video of what the Pentagon alleged was Osama bin Laden confessing to the 9-11 attacks emerged in December 2001, a German national news program conducted its own investigation into the tape. According to its own independent translators, Every single point in the video that the Pentagon alleges indicate Osama's foreknowledge or complicity in the 9-11 attack has been mistranslated, and they claim that the video does not, in fact, provide any proof of confession.
Famously, FBI spokesman Rex Toome told investigative journalist Ed Haas that the FBI did not include 9-11 on bin Laden's most wanted profile because there was no hard evidence connecting him to the crime. And yet, within the first minute of TV coverage of the second plane hitting the World Trade Center on 9-11, Osama bin Laden was named as the likely perpetrator of the event. This idea solidified into a near certainty within hours, and the 24-7 news coverage shifted almost immediately to the question of when the U.S. would invade Afghanistan. In an interview the day after 9-11, confronted with this tendency of the press to jump to conclusions about Osama's involvement, ex-CIA station chief Milt Bearden made some unexpected statements about the supposed terrorist mastermind. Well, Milt Bearden, again, you're one of our most experienced people with long experience in Afghanistan. What does your gut tell you about who's responsible for these attacks this week? My gut tells me we don't know the answer yet. My gut tells me that I'm not going to go with the first answer that comes to mind, but that there, there's quite possibly something else out there. Experts will jump on you and say it's Osama bin Laden's M.O. He's the only one that's, that, that, that is capable of this type of coordinated attack. My answer to them is he's the only one you know that's capable of this kind of attack. This was a tremendously sophisticated operation against the United States more sophisticated than anybody would ever have ascribed to, to Osama bin Laden. I think we need to do a little homework. We need to appoint a team B that looks for somebody else. I don't, I, I'm just not convinced it was bin Laden. There's no question in my mind that you're skeptical that Osama bin Laden, aided and abetted or at least protected by the Taliban, should be the principal target of some large military operation. If I'm wrong about that, tell me now. No, 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 you're not wrong, Dan. I'm saying is, uh, let, me, let me step back one step on this and say Osama bin Laden is an evil man and he's a component of the terrorism that we're dealing with across the board. All I'm saying is, is that I think Osama bin Laden has become the metaphor for the entire problem of, of terrorism involving Muslims with perceive, perceived grievances against the United States. And I think it would be wrong to say this is a one-size-fits-all operation and to go after bin Laden because an operation as sophisticated as carried out yesterday was, some, was, was an operation that was concealed from us for months probably before it took place. It happened without essentially a hitch except for one aircraft. And there is no reason to believe that these same people weren't capable of covering their tracks somehow on the way out. Now, I would go so far as to say that, that this, this group who was responsible for that, uh, if they didn't have an Osama bin Laden out there, they did, they'd invent one because he's a terrific uh, diversion for the rest of the world. And now, in May of 2011... After Osama bin Laden has been allegedly tracked down and allegedly shot by a Navy SEAL team, after a trillion dollars and two wars have been waged in the name of fighting his shadowy, non-existent terror organization, as the very fabric of our society itself has been torn asunder in the never-ending hunt for the terrorist boogeymen under our collective bed, perhaps it's time to ask once again what Osama bin Laden means to us after all. If one were to base their understanding of Osama bin Laden solely on mainstream media coverage of him over the last 10 years, a very different picture would emerge to the one with which you have just been presented. This media-constructed image would be one of a radical Muslim 
who appeared out of nowhere in the 1990s to begin a string of increasingly devastating terror attacks on American targets. After masterminding the 9-11 attacks in some undefined manner from a cave fortress in the hills of Afghanistan, he supposedly outwitted and outmaneuvered the combined might of the most powerful military and the most technologically sophisticated intelligence dragnet in the history of the world for an entire decade, all the while releasing video and audio tapes from his secret compound to taunt his would-be captors. Finally, we are told, he was tracked down and shot in a special forces raid during which live video transmissions were inexplicably unavailable and then buried at sea before his death could be confirmed by any independent third party. What emerges from this official Osama bin Laden story is not a person, but a comic book villain, a faceless, mysterious, motivationless embodiment of terrorism with all the reality of a Lex Luthor or Cobra commander. His is a powerful myth, made all the more powerful because it has been constructed and promoted by the very politicians and string-pullers who claim to be opposing him. Like Orwell's Emmanuel Goldstein, his face can be put before the public from time to time to produce the two-minute hate, a cathartic projection of anger upon an empty image. We know to hiss when his picture is dangled before us, and cheer when we are told he is dead. But always, always, it is stressed that he is fearsome, that he is ruthless, and that the only way to stop him is to surrender our rights and freedoms. Even in death, we are told, he and the mythical army of devotees he supposedly ruled over are a clear and present danger to our society, necessitating the continuation of the never-ending wars against abstract nouns, TSA agents groping children at the airports, and extrajudicial no-fly lists that are turning into no-ride lists and no-buy lists. The only thing we can say for certain is that the Osama bin Laden character has now been disposed of in a far-fetched burial story only fitting of his cartoonish myth. And now the public is already being prepared for his replacement myths, a gaggle of similarly cartoonish characters no less connected to the Western intelligence establishment than Osama himself. But after finally waking from the ten-year nightmare of the Osama bin Laden fable, are the public willing to go straight back to sleep? Or are they going to start questioning the official narratives that are cemented into place in the wake of every large-scale event, narratives that always support more government intrusion in our lives, expanded wars of aggression around the globe, and an ever-expanding police state? It's an important question, and one that must be answered quickly, while the public is still wary and skeptical of a government that has lied to them time and time again, and then refuses to provide that public with a single credible shred of proof that the largest manhunt in the history of America has ended with the disposal of this intelligence asset, Osama bin Laden. For if the public does choose to go back to sleep and dismiss the copious documentary evidence that the entire war on terror is a fraud being perpetrated by the same people who claim to be fighting the terrorists, we may never be able to awake from whatever nightmare they have planned for us next. For the Corbett Report in Western Japan, I am James Corbett. This video is brought to you by The Corbett Report. 2009 Video Archive. Buy your copy today at CorbettReport.com. Welcome. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your Sunday update for this 8th day of May 2011. And now for the real news. Osama bin Laden has allegedly been shot dead by Navy SEALs at a private residence in Abbottabad, Pakistan, 
according to one of numerous contradictory reports given by the U.S. government this week. In the latest development, soundless videos of someone seen from behind watching a TV image of Osama have been released along with years-old tape to convince the public that the person allegedly shot and killed last Sunday was, in fact, Osama bin Laden. It has yet to be explained how the release of this footage in any way supports the idea that Osama bin Laden was shot and killed last week and immediately buried at sea, nor how silent, undated images of someone who may or may not have been bin Laden disprove the assertion made by numerous heads of state and counterterrorism officials that he has in fact been dead for years. Do you think he's alive or dead? I've said before that he, I don't think he's alive. And you believe that? I have a strong feeling and I have some reason to believe that because I've asked my counterparts in the American um, intelligence agencies and they haven't heard of him since seven years. But I'm asking what you specifically believe because I saw a quotation from you in which you said that you believed bin Laden had died several years ago. So I'm just trying to determine what you individually believe on that issue. Yes, I, I, I think he died. So he perished some, some years ago and I think this, this was a story which was created. That's why I know them because we understand our code of ethics and creed. Osama bin Laden died when we went into Afghanistan. General Tommy Franks had stated very clearly that he had died and he made a slip. Now we knew he had already died by that time. By the time we had already gone into Afghanistan he was, and in Pakistan, we knew he was dead. The administration has been able to dominate the 24-7 news cycle for one week now by providing a completely unskeptical establishment media with a story that, it now turns out, was completely wrong in every respect, and then retracting that story piece by piece throughout the week. Originally, it was announced that bin Laden was killed after the SEALs stormed an opulent compound and engaged in an intense firefight with al-Qaeda operatives, including bin Laden himself, who not only returned fire, but used his own wife as a human shield. Since then, that version of events has been amended to state that the SEALs stormed a relatively spartan, unremarkable house, that only one of the people there actually attempted to use a gun, and that bin Laden did not return fire or use his wife as a shield. Now, many analysts are noting that the confusion around the narrative of the killing is a deliberate tactic to keep the public talking about an event for which absolutely no evidence has been provided and which has been outright contradicted by numerous experts and witnesses. And uh, we were able to monitor in a real-time basis uh, the uh, progress of the operation from its commencement to its time on target to the extraction of the remains and to then the egress off of the target. What about uh, the uh, at the White House Situation Room where President Obama was? Did he have any, was he seeing anything, any actual time, real-time action going on as well? I think they were viewing some of the real-time uh, aspects of this as well in terms of the intelligence that we were getting. So do you think, the, did the president see the shots fired at Osama bin Laden? No. No, not at all. Were, was there anything about this house that you found suspicious, that you found strange uh, to about To be it? honest, I always go in the evening, walk from my house to the same house where uh, they said the Osama bin Laden. The, the next house is my other house, which I rented to my cousin friend. And I, every day in the evening, we went there by walk with my wife for the just walking. I never seen anything like that, and that's why I can't believe that. And to be honest, it's not true. 
Osama, maybe some other people, but Osama is not a, you know, the bird who came fly went to the inside because this is restricted area. When we okay. came out from outside to come here to always army will say, oh, where's your ID card? So it's not belief. Unbelievable. Right. Yeah. Thank you very much. Well, uh, an interesting reaction. That was Jung Khan, a local resident. From the outset, the news that the Navy SEAL team allegedly dumped Osama's body into the sea has been the piece of the puzzle that has left the public most skeptical. Originally justified as being a traditional Islamic way of disposing of a body, that information has now been revealed to have been part of a deliberate deception campaign, with government IP addresses having been responsible for adding information about burial at sea to the Wikipedia article on the subject in the hours after the announcement. Many Muslim scholars have now come out to note that burial at sea is not a traditional Islamic practice. The idea that the public may actually accept this wildly implausible story without being presented with any evidence of any kind for it is now being scrutinized by analysts for possible use in other situations where the government would prefer the public to believe evidence-free assertions merely on their say-so. Other possible uses for this technique have already been suggested by pundits. The FBI, for instance, could claim to have buried the surveillance tapes from the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building at sea, but provide DNA evidence to prove that the tapes did not show a John Doe number 2 or secondary explosions at the building. The National Institute of Standards and Technology could claim that they have buried the data for their WTC7 collapse model at sea, but they still have their computer animations to prove that the building collapsed into itself at freefall gravitational acceleration due to scattered asymmetrical fires. The Bush administration could claim that they did in fact find Saddam's weapons of mass destruction, but buried them at sea before they could produce evidence for their existence. Many observers are cautioning, however, that regardless of the particular details of this incident, more worrying is how the incident is now being used to position the Americans and Pakistanis on a more antagonistic footing, potentially opening the door for greater conflict in the Middle East and indeed around the globe. This is Big New Brzezinski. He was National Security Advisor to Jimmy Carter. He is currently a top foreign policy advisor to Barack Obama. He has proven to be an outstanding friend uh, and somebody who I've learned an immense amount from. And in 1979, he supervised a covert American intelligence operation to fund and train the Afghan Mujahideen that would form the base of Al-Qaeda. U.S. National Security Advisor Brzezinski flew to Pakistan to set about rallying resistance. He wanted to arm the Mujahideen without revealing America's role. On the Afghan border near the Khyber Pass, he urged the soldiers of God to redouble their efforts. We know of their deep belief in God, and we are confident that their struggle will succeed. That land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day, because your fight will prevail, and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again. Because your cause is right, and God is on your side. 
the CIA involvement with the Afghan Mujahideen, including an estimated three to twenty billion dollars of American taxpayer money that was spent by the U.S. to train and equip them, has been known and acknowledged for years. The operation was part of a Cold War gambit to bog down the Red Army in what was to become the Soviet Union's own Vietnam. An unending struggle to occupy a country against a determined, and thanks to the CIA, well-funded and trained guerrilla resistance. We must recognize the strategic importance of Afghanistan. To stability and peace, a Soviet-occupied Afghanistan threatens both Iran and Pakistan, and is a stepping stone to possible control over much of the world's oil supplies. The scheme, known as Operation Cyclone, was in fact an amazing success. The years of guerrilla fighting and thousands of deaths demoralized the Red Army, drained the resources of an already overstrained CCCP, and emboldened citizens in other Soviet satellites to throw off the yoke of communist repression. The Red Army retreated from Afghanistan in 1989, and the Soviet Union fell shortly thereafter. What is hardly ever acknowledged, however. Is that the CIA involvement with the Mujahideen did not start after the Soviets entered Afghanistan, but before the invasion took place? This startling admission came directly from Brzezinski himself, who stated in a 1998 interview with a French periodical, "According to the official version of history, CIA aid to the Mujahideen began during 1980." That is to say, after the Soviet army invaded Afghanistan, 24th of December 1979. But the reality, secretly guarded until now, is completely otherwise. Indeed, it was July 3rd, 1979, that President Carter signed the first directive for secret aid to the opponents of the pro-Soviet regime in Kabul. And that very day. I wrote a note to the president in which I explained to him that, in my opinion, this aid was going to induce a Soviet military intervention. This is an important point. What it means is that the CIA did not merely take a pre-existing movement of freedom fighters and aid them in their fight against the Soviets. What it means is that Western intelligence actively recruited Islamist extremists for the express purpose of provocateuring the Soviets into invading. By Brzezinski's own admission, if these mujahideen had not been fostered by the CIA, the Soviets may never have invaded Afghanistan in the first place. In a very real sense, then, Brzezinski and the U.S. government fostered an extremist element of militant Islamists and helped form them into an effective fighting force. It was from the ranks of these Afghan mujahideen that another group was to emerge. Composed mostly of so-called Arab Afghans or foreign fighters who came to Afghanistan to take up the jihad against the Soviets, the expulsion of the Soviets from Afghanistan was to be just the first of their battles, and after the Red Army left, their attention was to turn elsewhere.
Of course, the geopolitics of the era required that the U.S. not be directly implicated in funding and trading the Mujahideen. Domestically, Americans would have been outraged had they been aware that they were footing the bill for training and equipping Islamic militants. And internationally, if the Soviets knew the extent of the CIA involvement in the region, it could have brought the two superpowers to the brink of World War III. Consequently, the training, arming, and funding of the Mujahideen was run through a series of fronts and compartmentalized so that not even those supposedly directing the operation knew its full extent. The official story is that U.S. funding, arms, and training went exclusively to the Afghanis, with the money for the foreign jihadists, or so-called Arab Afghans from which Al-Qaeda would spring, coming from the Saudis. The facts on the ground, however, tell a very different story. Within this group of Arab Afghans was an even smaller group centered around Osama bin Laden, a Saudi-born heir to the bin Laden family construction fortune. In Afghanistan in the late 1980s, his group consisted of about a dozen people. This group was known as Al-Qaeda, or so we are led to believe. Bin Laden himself claimed in his last authenticated interview in late 2001 that the name came from Abu Abaydah al-Banashiri, one of his accomplices in establishing the training camps in Afghanistan. Strange then that four years later, after the 7-7 bombings in London in 2005, Robin Cook, the former leader of the House of Parliament in the UK, would write an article for the London Guardian in which he claimed Al-Qaeda, in English, the base, literally referred to the database of Mujahideen who were being handled by the CIA in Afghanistan. Some researchers have even noted that Al-Qaeda is a slang term for the toilet in Arabic, hardly a name for a shadowy global terrorist organization. Regardless of how the group got its name, the fact is that this small group of militants were nurtured with the Afghan Mujahideen by the CIA at the behest of Zbigniew Brzezinski. There is evidence of direct U.S. involvement with Osama bin Laden and the hardline Arab militants in all three areas of Operation Cyclone, including funding, training, and arming the Arab Afghans. The startling truth according to the sworn testimony of Michael Springman, an official at the Jeddah Consulate during this period, is that not only was the CIA providing training to bin Laden and his operatives, but that bin Laden was, in fact, a CIA asset, and the agency was rubber-stamping visas for his operatives to go to the U.S. for training. And... I had been told that this was a visa scam, and it certainly seemed that way to me. I was told, look who needs the money. And the price, supposedly, for these visas was $2,500. And it was, you know, you know, the king's barber's servant uh, to get a visa. Uh, Frères was seen filling out visa applications for people in the consulate. Uh, it was just absolutely incomprehensible to me. And people I talked to who had been there uh, really didn't want to say much more about it. And it wasn't until I was out of the Foreign Service, 
when my appointment had been terminated for unspecified reasons that I learned from three good sources. Joe Trento, the journalist, uh, a fellow attached to a university in Washington, D.C., and a guy with expert knowledge on the Middle East who had worked for a government agency. They said, it's very simple. The CIA and its asset, Osama bin Laden, were recruiting terrorists for the Afghan war. They were sending them to the United States for training, for rewards, for whatever purpose, and then sending them on to Afghanistan. And most likely, the problems they had with the liquor at the consulate, uh, large amounts of it disappearing, it being sold at very high markups, uh, and so forth, was being used to fund this. Perhaps not coincidentally, the U.S. consulate in Jeddah, from which the CIA was smuggling operatives for bin Laden in the 80s, was the very consulate from which 11 of the 9-11 hijackers were to receive visas to enter the U.S., many of them using a special fast-track program called Visa Express, which only began four months before 9-11. Likewise, Evidence links the CIA and bin Laden through arms sales. The suggestion that bin Laden was a customer for CIA arms has been repeated by Der Spiegel, BBC, and many other mainstream media sources. But in Simon Reeves' 1999 book, The New Jackals, one CIA source is quoted as saying that U.S. agents armed bin Laden's men by letting him pay rock-bottom prices for basic weapons. Incredibly, the funding for the Afghan operation also connects the U.S. to Osama. The U.S. provided the funding for the operation to the ISI, the Pakistani Inter-Services Intelligence, which worked closely with the CIA. In turn, the ISI, in cooperation with the CIA, distributed these funds to the Afghan Mujahideen through a front organization known as MAK, or the Bureau of Services. And one of the key men involved in arranging the finances of MAK, Osama bin Laden. After the Soviet withdrawal, Osama would take control of the organization, and it would become the base of what we now know as Al-Qaeda. In fact, the CIA, through their Pakistani proxies in the ISI, not only funded armed and trained Osama bin Laden, but helped spur poppy cultivation to record levels in Afghanistan in an attempt to get the Soviet troops addicted to heroin. And they created the Taliban, the hardline fundamentalist group that would take control of Afghanistan after the Soviets withdrew. And the Taliban government would become the only government in the world willing to harbor Osama bin Laden from 1996 onwards. The simple fact is that U.S. involvement in Afghanistan from 1979 onwards implicates them in the founding, funding, and training of Osama bin Laden and other hardline militant Islamists. And as we shall see, the ties extend much further into the 90s and beyond. But what does Brzezinski, one of Obama's top advisors, think about this? Does he, in retrospect, admit the danger in having nurtured Al-Qaeda and the Taliban into existence? Does he regret American involvement in the region? In his 1998 interview with Le Nouvel Observateur, he stated, What is most important to the history of the world, the Taliban or the collapse of the Soviet Empire? 
some stirred up Muslims or the liberation of Central Europe and the end of the Cold War. All right, friends, that's it for tonight. So thank you once again for tuning in for another edition of Corbett Report Radio. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we've been breaking down some of the myths and memes and exaggerations around the Osama bin Laden fairy tale that the world has been forced to accept in the wake of 9-11, or at least has been asked to accept in the wake of 9-11 and the events of that day. And I think that uh, there's been a lot of very compelling evidence to come out over the past 11 years that Osama bin Laden was long dead before 2011, but regardless of whether or not he was, or whether he was killed in that raid, or whether he was killed in completely different circumstances, the point is that the Osama bin Laden corpse is still being paraded out on the political stage for the political puppets to parade around as if they have any significance whatsoever. Obama got Osama, indeed. Well, it is important to keep this information in the minds of a public that unfortunately has the collective attention span of a gnat and can be led along like a bull on a chain through the nose because they just simply do not go back and question the any of the propaganda that we've been expected to swallow or think about how we were led from A to B to C to D all the way down to Z with such unfortunate uh, predictability. So here we are living in the age of the Department of Fatherland Security with the uh, TSA gropers waiting at every airport and soon at every train and bus station and on the highways and we have the police state and the panopticon surveillance state and all of this unthinkable te- or technology that is being mainlined into our everyday lives because we have not been vociferous enough in raising our voices against these myths. So I think an important part of that is deconstructing the Osama bin Laden myth. I hope that the uh, videos that we've uh, aired here on the broadcast today have been helpful for you, at least in documenting some of the concerns that we might have with that Osama bin Laden fairy tale. And once again, if you are interested in helping to spread the word about the works that we've been playing on the program tonight, you can go to uh, CorbettReport.com and on, on the radio tab for tonight's episode, that's episode 219 of the broadcast for those keeping track at home, you can of course find the links to all of the, these videos that we were playing tonight so that you can spread them around. And that's really what CorbettReport.com is about, and that's what I hope you are doing. I hope you are using these videos and resources and links and radio shows and everything that I'm doing as a resource to help you and to help you spread the word to others as well because once again it really is about winning the battle for the hearts and minds of the public because if the public can be uh, can be exposed to the idea of false flag terror and the fact that they are being lied to time and time and time again to justify these foreign wars and invasions and aggressions all around the globe and the, the crackdown and the police state at home then they can hopefully wake up and realize what's going on so that in the wake of whatever false flag they have planned in the future, people will not go along with it. That is the point. That was the point that I made on my 9-11 11th anniversary podcast that aired earlier this week. It's called The Meaning of 9-11 Truth. I hope you will go and download that one from the archives. I think it's a particularly important podcast episode. So once again, all of those resources are there at CorbettReport.com. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of media available completely free and to download and commercial free as well. And that is, as always, made possible by the subscribers to the Corbett Report website. And details of how you can subscribe are there at CorbettReport.com slash support. Subscription does help to keep me going, and it is the way that I fund the website. So it this report truly is brought to you by you. 
And as my token of gratitude to all those subscribers, I do a weekly newsletter that includes an editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on all my DVDs, and a monthly subscriber-only video. All of that available for as little as 100 Japanese yen a month. That's about a dollar forty a month. So hopefully not too much to ask. And I want to thank everyone who has signed up for to become a subscriber this week. I truly do appreciate your support out there, and I can't do this without you. And on that note, we're going to leave it there for this week. And of course, we will be back here on the broadcast next week with an all-new entourage of guests and topics lined up for your listening pleasure. So until then, I want to thank you all so much for tuning in tonight, as every night, and ask you to join me again next week here on Corbett Report Radio. <laughs>